Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with longtime NFL executive Rick Spielman. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a longtime NFL executive, scout, player personnel executive, and the GM of the Miami Dolphins and the Minnesota Vikings. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Rick Spielman. Thanks for coming on the program, Rick. Yeah, no, it's an honor to be on, and thanks for inviting me on tonight. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I'm interested. I love getting out of my wheelhouse. We're going to the general managers of the NFL, something I don't... Guys, I don't get to talk to that often. We've had a few on. We've had a few on. But uh, out of the shoot, how many times now? I know this coming from an athletic family. Uh, how many times you get your brother's football card in the mail asking you to sign it and vice versa? <laughs> well, I didn't have a football card. I was a great camp body uh, back uh, when I was going through it. But uh, it was funny. My brother and I always were, were probably the best of friends, but we always were very competitive. And, you know, he had a great career until he broke his neck and uh, had to eventually retire. But he always said, geez, how, how many uh, years did you were you in the NFL? You know, that was back when I got cut three times and never made it to a roster. And uh, he goes, yeah, well, I played 11 years. And I said, but if you want to really – turn it around i've had 31 years in the nfl so i've tripled what you were able to do but now you know he's up there working as a special assistant to the owner with the detroit lions and and really enjoying that role right now he's trying to he's trying to get up to you in in tenure for that pension i I think the pension max out at 10 years doesn't it 15 15 see that yeah he'll take he'll take his player pension uh, but I don't know if he'll ever reach the front office pension. Very cool. Very cool. All right. You were born in, uh, I believe it's Massillon, Ohio. Is that how it's pronounced? Born, yeah, we were born in Canton, Ohio. Canton, okay. Six or seven blocks from the Hall of Fame. And then in high school, uh, that's a that's a great rivalry between uh, Canton, McKinley, and Massillon. It's been going on over 100-plus years. So, uh, but we uh, – my dad had left at uh, Canton Timken. He was a head football coach there in high school, and we uh, moved over to Maslin where they hired him. So that was a pretty big controversy uh, going from uh, one arch rival school to the other. Uh, but it was, it's such a great football town. You know, in Maslin, if you're born a male, uh, you automatically get a football in your crib that says, I'm a future Maslin Tiger. So. They take their high school football very serious there, a lot of tradition, and uh, we were both very blessed to, to be a part of that tradition in Northeast Ohio. Yeah, I know your dad was a football coach, and, and uh, doing my prep work, I also know he, he uh, refereed basketball in his downtime. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> I'm always interested, what was it like being raised by a football coach? Was it, was it a disciplinary thing? Was it, was it different than other households, your buddies' houses? Yeah, you know, he we were, uh, you know, we were, uh, since we've been two years old and able to walk, my mom would drop us off on the practice field. And so my dad always had us around and went to all the games. In fact, back in the day before all the Bose headsets and everything, we were the court holders for him on the sidelines. And I got to travel on the team buses when they went to away games. So it was a unique experience to uh, be able to do that. So that's basically all that me and my brother grew up with from starting from the able, when we were able to walk to, uh, to, you know, my brother went on and had a great NFL career and, and I ended up getting in the front office of the NFL. And uh, that was probably part of our upbringing because that's what we knew uh, we were most familiar with. And our family, our families kind of mirror each other a little bit. You had a little brother. Uh, I'm sure Chris was, especially in our in our early years, he was probably hanging around with with older brother and in in the older crew. You know, I, I had yeah, that. With he, my, he was, yeah, that's all we did is everywhere growing up when we got together and, and before video games came out, we were always out playing uh, 
you know, in the backyard or at the park and coming up with football games or basketball. And, and I always uh, took him with me one because he was good enough to hang with the older kids, but, uh, that's how close we were, but that's, uh, how he, uh, he kind of took his uh, lumps, you know, playing with the older kids, but that's maybe what made him the player he, uh, ended up being. Yeah, it's very cool. Cause I, I, I remember, you know, just w- when you go back and you reminisce a little bit, I had that childhood where, you know, I had a younger brother, Aaron was, it was four years younger than me, but he still, he always wanted to hang with older brother. And I'd look at him like, yeah, I don't know if I can bring you today with my buddies, but, but you're right. They, they kind of were athletic enough to hang with the older kids and the older kids liked them. You know, they were, I, I always tested Aaron. I said, well, if you're cool enough, you can come with me. And if it, if it got too rough or, or there was even an older crowd, you know, he'd sit on the sidelines and he'd announce the games. So uh, I, I had a fun childhood with like that. And always, you know, I never had that rivalry because of that four year window. You know, I, I think you right. in high school, in high school, you and Chris played together on the same team. That had to be really cool. Aaron and yeah, myself were yeah. always missing each other by one year. My senior year, he was in eighth grade, and same with college. When I got out of SC, he was going to SC, so we never had that. We never actually played together on a team until uh, till the big leagues. 1998, I got to play with him a year, and, and uh, it was pretty cool. Uh, but, but when you're in the heat of the battle, as you know, it wasn't about, oh, what was it like playing with your brother? It was like, no, he was my third baseman. I was the second baseman. It was nice to have lunch with him once in a while, but I don't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't really sit down and enjoy it like I should. And when people remind me, hey, you and your brother played together in 98, I said, yeah, well, actually we did. I forgot about that because, you know, you're so focused when you're in the middle of your career of, of playing the next game or who's pitching tomorrow that you don't think, yeah, it's neat that me and my brother are playing together. It's more of a, just a professional relationship. Yeah, we we uh, we were able to play together in high school, and he was the only sophomore uh, at the time playing on the varsity. So, and I was a quarterback at the time. So, we got a chance to play together there. And then, uh, after I got cut by the uh, San Diego Chargers at the time, uh, I did get signed by the Lions. And then that following spring, they uh, drafted my brother uh, in the second round. So we were uh, able to we were roommates and. Uh, went through training camp together, preseason together. So that was probably one of the uh, coolest and probably neatest experiences I had uh, through my playing career. Very cool. And you said high school, you were a quarterback uh, and you end up going to Southern Illinois where you'll be a linebacker. How did you give me the story? How'd you get to Southern Illinois? (laughs) It was funny. The uh, head coach at the time was Ray Dempsey. Uh, who coached with my dad in high school. When my dad was a high school coach, he first started out at a high school in Canton called Canton Central Catholic, who he ended up coaching Alan Page. Alan Page went to that high school. Uh, And there was a lot of great coaches that came out of that program in that Northeast Ohio area. So um, Ray Debsey was, he was on his staff. So we, we were in the Missouri Valley back then, and I got recruited by Pitt. I got recruited by Michigan State, by Vanderbilt. They all wanted me to move the defense. And Southern Illinois at the time uh, said, no, you can come in and play quarterback. And redshirted and ran scout team at quarterback, and they had some injuries at linebacker. And next thing you know, the rest of my career was at linebacker, uh, which I probably should have been anyway to begin with. Now, this is coming from obviously pretty layman guy when it comes to football and evaluating talent. Uh, what is the, the difference do you see uh, from an executive position from big time college football and a, and a smaller college? What do you see from a talent perspective when you're evaluating? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, well, you have to be careful because I remember my first experience when I first started scouting with the Detroit Lions, I went down to uh, South Carolina State in Orangeburg, South Carolina, and I saw this defensive end down there, and this, this comes with experience, and his name was Robert Porsche, and he, I was like, well, this guy is probably maybe a late round free agent guy. He has all the measurables he can run, but how does a guy from a small school end up playing in the NFL? Well, the following year, we ended up drafting him in the first round. I still believe he's the sack record holder for the Detroit Lions. 
back when when we drafted him in the first round in the 90s. So it's even different, you know, because I went to usually try to get to college games on Thursday night or Friday or Saturday. Uh, I'd meet the team uh, if we were on the road. I'd go to a college game on Saturday, then meet the team wherever we were playing if we were on the road. But watching even at Power 5 schools and then watching that NFL game, there's just such a difference in speed and such a difference in timing and windows. So when you're evaluating talent, um, you, you know, you have to look at all the traits for that position. And let's take away the, you know, all the characteristics that you're looking for, you know, the love of the game, passion, you know, work ethic, you know, intelligence, which is a big part of it. Um, and do they have the raw physical tools? And what we had always done was once we got through the fall, whether it was from, you know, a small division three school or division two school or power five, that then we brought our coaches together and we really dug deep into seeing what we saw on tape. Uh, does this guy first have the physical ability to match up and play at the NFL? And then our grading scale was different. We never put him in round one, round two, round three. We kind of put him in the categories. Well, if this guy comes in, he's going to be a starter by the day one. Or this guy's going to be a starter eventually in, in year one. Or sometimes it was a smaller school guy who had all the physical ability but didn't have all the accommodations that are provided to the players at the Power 5 level that, hey, we can get this guy in our nutrition program, we can get this guy in our weight room and in our weight program, we think this guy can develop into a starter in three years from now. Or So we tried to put him in specific categories, and it really came in once the scouts were on the road, we're all grading for the league. But when we brought the coaches in in the spring and they were heavily involved in our process, then we started narrowing it down for our team. And how does this guy fit from a schematic standpoint does he have the physical attributes to do what you're going to do, not only from a scheme standpoint, but who he's going to line up against? And then how quickly can we develop this guy? So, you know, we all came together. And when we came to a conclusion on a player, we really had to have the buy-in from the coaches as well, which may be a little different than baseball. I, I, I know some of the baseball and how that is, but – in the NFL, when you draft a guy, you know, especially the higher he is drafted, the more of an impact he's expected to have as a rookie. Where in baseball, I believe those guys, you know, you have your minor league systems and time to develop before they get called up to the majors. Here, it's ready. You better be ready to hire you go. That that hopefully you're hitting on guys that come in and make an immediate impact. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me the differences, and and I was talking to a buddy about this how how much different the NFL is from uh, Major League Baseball, and we have the minor leagues. The NFL, your your minor leagues is college football. You know, we have college baseball, but then you have the minor leagues. Even the best of the best. Now you'll have that rarity, the Dave Winfield, the the John Olerud that goes straight from college to the big leagues. But that's so rare. It's always these, especially hitters, you always need those reps at the minor leagues and to learn the system. Whereas in the NFL, like you said, your first round pick, you're expected to be on the field next year with the big boys playing with, with men and expected to perform. Whereas baseball, you have a little bit of a cushion, a little bit of a learning curve. It's very interesting. The difference, I think the physical, uh, because the draft in baseball, you can take a kid when he's 18 out of high school, you know, the, the physicality right. isn't there yet. They can grow into it. The college guys. Yes. They're closer to the big league, especially the blue chip guys. But, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting dynamic. You mentioned earlier, you went to the chargers in 87. You were on the practice squad, the lions in 88. When you were done with the Lions after 88, you, like you said, grew up in a football household. Dad was, you know, coaching since you can remember. You played college football. Now you, you, you've you got a taste of the NFL. And all of a sudden you're out there and it's 1989. Did you have a plan to go from there? Or, or was that kind of a point in your life where you said, I can decide what I'm going to do? <laughs> well, what I did is uh, um, I went back and finished my master's degree up at Ohio State. 
And uh, so I wanted to make sure that I got that box checked and that accomplished. And then I became a, like an assistant athletic director or director of intramurals at actually a community college. And when I experienced that, they were going from a technical college to a community college and starting a sports program. So I was basically in charge of creating four sports uh, with my, with my, uh, the, the person that I directly reported to. We went out and hired coaches for those four sports. We started the recruiting process. I ran the study halls. Uh, I collected the concession stand money at, at all the games, the baseball games, the basketball games. I ended up being uh, the voice of the Cougars, the Columbus State Cougars during the basketball games. I would got a student and me and him would go do the laundry after the game. So they would have uh, everything ready to go the next day. But doing all of that stuff really taught me how to build something from the ground level up. Well, during that time, the Detroit Lions knew that I graduated with a master's in exercise physiology and biomechanics. And that's when sports science was coming in a little bit, strength coaches, and asked me if I'd be interested in that job. And then, uh, so I was going to go up there and interview. They called me back and said that, well, with your brother on a team, there's going to be a conflict of interest and we probably uh, aren't going to do anything. Well, three weeks later, they called back and they said, would you be interested in scouting? And I said, yeah, I'd love to be interested in scouting. So what I did in that fall was while I was working uh, at Columbus State Community College on Sundays, this was before the internet, before cell phones, which no one understands what life was like before then, I would drive down to the Cincinnati Bengal home games and I would do depth charts. And then I would write reports on the players. And I remember that we had just, me and my wife had just been married that how much I enjoyed driving from Columbus down to Cincinnati to get into that atmosphere and to feel that, I don't know what it is, that sensation of walking into a stadium. And that's when the Bengals had Boomer Esiason and Nicky Woods, and they were rolling pretty good. And that's how I knew that that's the direction I wanted to go. Well, the Lions then the following spring uh, brought me on as a combine scout, uh, which is kind of the beginning of scouting where you, not only scout for the Lions, but for eight other teams that belong to the Combine Service. And you got an opportunity every spring, and this is how you learn scouting, in my opinion. This is how I always brought young scouts up through. The Blesco Scout, while the team scouts are getting prepared for the upcoming draft in the spring, the Blesco Scout is actually working on the next year's following draft. So I would be the first initial report on the, what we called the rising seniors at the time or potential juniors that may come out early. So you have no indication. No one has seen these players. You went into the schools. You dug them out. I had my first areas from West Virginia down to Miami of Florida. And there are a lot of schools that play a lot of football between that, those two uh, points. And then at the end of May here, which is coming up next week, is that I would give my presentation in my area of who I thought was going to be an NFL prospect. And all the teams that were involved in the Blesto organization, the combine service we were part of, then would take my report and determine where all their scouts would want to go in the sprint in, in the following fall. So that's how you basically learn how to scout. And a lot of people ask me, you know, how do you learn scouting? Well, there's no classes that you can go to in college to take it. You learn scouting by going out and just continuing to build your library up. Like I built my library up with Robert Porsche, who I mentioned earlier, um, that now I understand that a small school kid, if he has unique physical traits, what he can potentially be uh, when the coaches at the NFL level get an opportunity to develop him. And even through my 30-some years of doing this, I always referred back to this guy reminded me of this player when he came out. So uh, there's no shortcuts in the learning how to scout. It's just a matter of watching oh, thousands and thousands of guys and making comparisons and then understanding why a guy makes it and why a guy doesn't make it. So a guy can have all the physical attributes, but maybe he doesn't have – the heart or he doesn't have the mental capacity to understand the playbook and to play fast. 
And that's a whole nother rabbit hole that I can go down on. As we always, if I made, if we made mistakes or I made mistakes and we missed on a player, we would always go back. And I learned it from my, my buddies and my friends in the military uh, and after action review. So we would dig deep. Did we miss because of a physical trait? Did we miss because of the mental trait? Did we miss because of passion for the game? Where do we miss? Most of my misses came from when we fell in love with a player's athletic ability, but he truly just relied on that. He truly didn't love what he did and love playing the game of football. And I imagine that's across all sports. The difference between making it and being excellent at it, and it's not so much the physical ability. It's those guys willing to go beyond to work the extra to truly do love what they do and, and want to succeed at it. Yeah, you're with the Lions from uh, 1990 through 96. Um, you know, you talk about the scouting, and, it, and it's so interesting because my grandfather was a was a scout for the Boston Red Sox for 40 years. He finished his career, and then he went into scouting. He did it for 40 years. During my whole career, he was a scout. He had an area. And I'd always tease him about scouting. And, Come on, Gramps, can't be that hard. Well, anyway, fast forward a little bit. I, I retire, and years later, I go to work for uh, – the Oakland A's in 2014 and 15, I was a roving instructor, special assistant to Billy Bean. And then one day they said to me, Brett, the draft's coming up. We'd like you to go down to the SEC tournament, which nowadays in college baseball is kind of the, you know, kind of the, the gold standard for, you know, the best players now are right. kind of the SEC earlier, you know, back in the nineties and the eighties, it was a lot of the PAC 12, but now it's the SEC. So they said, we want you to go put your eyes on some guys at the SEC and give us your opinion. I said, okay. Yeah. Everybody goes to the I, SEC for football. <laughs> right. And I, you know what I'm thinking? Shoot. I know more than all these guys, my eyes see what they see. I go down there. I'll tell you what, Rick, it was such an enlightening educational experience for me to sit down with this with a lifer scout that never played above high school has been doing this for 20 25 years and really sat me down and gave me a tutorial and they said brett let me teach you how what we do and you know i came in just thinking i'd be able to oh that guy's a big leaguer that guy's not that guy is he goes it's more than that he said yeah and i found that the guys that truly have that dedication work over time Go watch batting practice, watch infield for day after day after day after day. And and I think there's got to be some similarities between baseball and football. But I remember a, a gentleman by the name of Grady Fuson. He's been a scout in, in the major leagues for 40 plus years. And I was with him and he was kind of asking my for my opinion. But at the same time, seeing what I'd answer when it came to the world of scouting, he says, what do you see out here? I said, I see this, this and this. He goes, who does that guy remind you of? And I said, Grady, what the right. hell do I, what, what do I need to tell you who he reminds me of? He goes, because if he doesn't remind you of anybody, he's probably not a big leaguer. And the light went off right. and I said, that makes great sense. He said, if you've never seen him swing, like, you know, thousands and thousands of players, if you've never seen a swing like his, what makes you think he's going to be the first one with it? It made a ton of sense. And now he had my ear and I started trying to learn. I said, okay, don't teach me more. And then he would say to me, Brett, quit watching that guy. I said, that guy is going to be a, a high pick. He goes, I don't care. He's a sophomore. The draft is in one week. Concentrate on the juniors right. out there. And then we, we were picking 19th that, that year. And he said, who's the best players here? I said, that guy right there and that guy right there. It was Bregman and a guy named Dansby Swanson. And they went one and two overall. He said, quit looking at them. We don't pick until 19th. They're going to be off the board. Right. <laughs> so I started, you know, I, but it started all making sense to me. And, and this, I thought I was just going to go to this SEC tournament and pick all the winners. I had a lot to learn and it was really kind of a cool experience for me and, and an educational process and, and gave me a, a different way of, of, of looking at scouts and, and the, man, the hard work they've got to put in to be a good scout. You know, uh, you, you really got to dedicate yourself to it and put in the time. And, and it's and it's a lot of time away from your family, a lot of time on the road, a lot of things you miss with your kids uh, as they grow up. 
um, which makes it very hard. I mean, there's a reason why I have over 3 million Marriott points. <laughs> I know right, right, right. Yeah, but that's, that's the, uh, you know, our, our, just like the, the uh, baseball scouts, the only way, you know, we are able to do film, but you also have to get out there and see the players live. And, you know, a, a normal NFL scout is starting in August, trying to get to all the training camps, as many as they can, trying to see as many of the what we call A players and B players. And then you're out on the road 10 days, maybe come home three or four, then you're back out another 10. Uh, you know, and you're finishing up at the end of November at the college season and then uh, doing cross-check tapes because we cross-check by position. And then after that, you're at all the all-star games, you're at the combine, and then you're back on the road at all the pro days uh, before the draft. So it is, everybody thinks that, man, all you get to do is go uh, to, to games and eat popcorn and hot dogs and, and get to watch great football. But that's the, that's, it's the most unglamorous job and the most underappreciated job there is because people don't realize how hard it is. And I've even had a lot of coaches that said, well, if I'm not going to coach anymore, I can always do scouting. And I had a couple of players that wanted to try it. And uh, once they figured out the time, the, the, the travel, the away, how long, and you're not staying at Ritz Carlton, you're staying at the Fairfield right. Inns or the Fort Yards and places like that. Uh, and then you're, you know, you're at the school at seven in the morning and then you're not leaving till seven at night. Then you're driving three hours to your next one. And in between, you're trying to write all your reports up. And I always wanted to make sure when I was scouting that I wrote my reports up after I seen them and took enough time to do that because I didn't want to say I went to four schools and in those four schools, I'd seen seven offensive linemen. Well, I took notes, but I want to keep it when it was fresh in my head. So they all don't sound the same if you're sitting there writing for five or six hours. Yeah, it's it's definitely all work, and I I definitely have have a newfound respect uh, for scouting. In you know my obviously my my experience was just on the baseball side, but I'm sure it's across the board in all the major sports. 1997, you head to the Bears, and uh, you're the director of pro personnel. And as a player, I always wanted to know, what does that entail? That's different than the college scouting. When you're running the pro department, basically you're doing all of the advanced scouting for the upcoming opponents. Uh, so if we're playing. So it's like a, it's, it would be like a cross checker in baseball. I got or not a cross checker. I, I know exactly. That. So when I come to town, I have a report for the next series Correct. I'm playing of what these yeah. guys, what, what is what these guys have done in the last week or two. I have a report from the scouts. Correct. That's what the, the NFL side. OK, I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah, that that part of it. And then you're writing up uh, also during that time with your staff, all of the unrestricted free agents that are going to be coming out of contract, which can be up to three to 400 of those guys. You're also monitoring um, the cut list. So every day you get a waiver wire, you have to have a short list ready to go. If you have injuries, who you bring it in for workouts. We have workouts every Tuesday on the players days off. Uh, you're balancing the practice squad coach comes in and says, listen, we got four offensive linemen hurt this week. I need at least two. Uh, can you get me two off the street? So at least we can get through practice. So then you're bringing in guys for the workouts, signing to, uh, you're, you're managing the roster day in and day out. Uh, and then you're also monitoring the other leagues, the Canadian league. Now we have the USFL league going, the XFL is coming in anything in the arena league. So you're basically responsible for everything uh, on the pro side uh, of professional football. 2000, you get promoted to vice president, 2002 senior VP, and then 2004, you become the general manager of the Miami Dolphins. How does your life change when you get that job? Now, all of a sudden, you're the boss. Did you have that moment of, oh, I'm here? No, it, it was a little different in Miami because the way the, the Dolphins were structured, even though I was named general manager, I overseen all the personnel side of it. Um, but uh, the head coach always had the final say on, on the decision in personnel. So basically, they sometimes refer that to as a GM light. 
Um, but while the coaches are coaching during the season and everything, and then when they come in during the off season, basically everything was set up. I ran all the meetings. I helped set all the draft board. But when we were on the clock, uh, the head coach always had the uh, final say on, on who we were selected. I put three or four names up there for him, make sure he understood that, you know, who those players were, make sure I watched film with him on those particular guys. But then he would have the uh, final say on, on the direction we went, especially during the draft. After 04. Then ch- go yeah. ahead. Go ahead, Rick. Oh, yeah. And then uh, I'm sure you get through when it uh, ended up in Minnesota and kind of went through that same step. And then when I became the GM uh, in Minnesota in 2010, I had the final authority over everything. So that was over basically the coaching staff. You know, the owners are always going to have final decision over that. Uh, but final decision on all the trades, on all the roster moves, on all the draft selections, that's when you, I actually had full authority over everything. But, you know, to describe a GM in the NFL, if you want to go down that road a minute, it's totally changed from where it was maybe even five, six years ago because you're responsible for so many other things and overseeing every department in the football operations from the travel, from the sports science, from the analytics, uh, you know, from all the, the doctors, the training room, to the video, to the equipment. Uh, it just, and then you had to cross over uh, on the business side because the business wants to, let's say, bring in sponsor X, Y, and Z. Well, they'd have to work, I'd have to work with them on, well, you can't do it here, you have to do it here. How you set up training camp, how you, how you travel when you're on the road hotels you stay in so it was a lot of things and that's not including you know um everything that was put out on our vikings entertainment network network that was that uh, was involved in football i did never wanted them to put anything out from a highlight uh or anything like that that may give our opponents a competitive advantage so you had to really monitor what was put out on your website as well. So there were a lot of different balls juggling, and then that's not count. You get the 2 a.m. phone call that a player was arrested for a DUI or a player did this, then you're dealing with that. So it was pretty nonstop, and it was probably maybe what it evolved to was maybe 30% of my time was personnel. I knew when I had the lockdown, when it was free agency, I knew when, okay, these next month, I'm just going to be doing nothing but the draft. So everything else can get put on hold till after the draft. But there's a lot of things that are involved now in being a general manager of a team than there was maybe five or six years ago where you were just involved in personnel and making personnel decisions. Vikings, to, yeah, 2006 to 2011. Like you, like you mentioned, you went through a similar process that you did in Miami. Become the general manager. Uh, how important is that relationship for you to have as the general manager with your head coach? Not only your head coach, but also your owner. So you're kind of in the middle. There's a balancing act there. Is it team to team, organization to organization? Or well, just give me your experience on, on how important those two relationships were and how they worked. Yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely important because basically the way we were structured in Minnesota, the ownership would call me directly on uh, uh, any matter of, to- of topics that would ever pop up in your mind. So my relationship with the head coaches that I worked with, hey, owners are calling on this because I didn't want them to be bothered with you know, 82 calls during a week from the ownership. Uh, so what I would do is cipher through everything the ownership wanted, try to get the answers that I could on my own. And then I would make sure that the head coach was in the loop on everything. So he was never caught off guard from what the ownership was asking to maybe what the business side was asking, because I wanted to make sure he also approved uh, everything that was going on in that building as well. So Basically, you are tying in, you are the probably the uh, axle to the wheel where everything's coming to you, then you disperse it 
to everybody else. But it, it starts with you, and then you filter through everything and making sure. The one thing I learned from a leadership standpoint is over-communicating. And you have to over-communicate so everybody is on the same page. You familiar with that movie, Draft Day? Kevin Costner's the star in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I told my how, wife, don't worry, I'm not going to get my cat guy pregnant. <laughs> how, first of all, I, I watch, you know, I watch baseball movies all the time. And a lot of times I got to cringe at them because because it's what we yeah. did. And we know the little nuances and the in the in the little things that Hollywood keeps out. And, it you know, you want to yell at the screen. That's not right. <laughs> and it drives me crazy. But on the football side, first of all, how realistic was that movie? And I want you to take me through it's draft day and behind the scenes in that room and what really goes on. How many phones do you have going? Can your wife get a hold of you on that day or is she off limits? Uh, take me through that day. <laughs> yeah, no, I saw the movie and as most movies, just like most sports movies, there's going to be a little bit of Hollywood added to it. Uh, but it kind of gave you a general view. Uh, but to take you really inside the draft room on draft day, draft night, everything has already been discussed. You've been through, boy, if you start back in our December meetings, our February meetings, our April meetings, probably 10 to 12 weeks of meetings. So you know that draft board inside and out. What we really try to hone in on at the end was all the different scenarios that can potentially happen. And I've been in a lot of situations where you're on the clock and, you know, you have, I had two guys that manned the trade phones. So if we wanted to trade up, they would start going from 10 picks from where we were higher and start seeing if we had any potential suitors on that we can make a trade. Or if we want, I decide we're going to trade back, uh, then talk to the 10 teams below us before we pick. So that was their responsibility is handling all of those calls. Uh, you had a person that was direct line uh, to the draft itself. Uh, so they were able to submit the name on who we were going to, who we were going to draft. Um, you had your doctors in there in case there was anything that came up medical. Hey doc, tell me again about this guy's knee just so it refreshes me. But things happened so fast. I related a lot to a coach or a player trying to, you know, making split second decisions on game day, because when you're on the clock um, and then you have to either trade or you're going to select the player, what happens if your player right before you get ready to select him was taking the pick before yours? What is your game plan then? So we tried to rehearse as many different scenarios and I always try to put us in a worst case scenario. So we knew how to react, but it's pretty, very quiet, I would say, uh, draft day in those in those rooms behind the scenes. You're watching the board. Uh, you're watching how the players come off. Uh, I had a pretty good sense of where the players were coming off. The other thing that people don't realize is that you have to know the other team's needs as well. So what did they do in free agency? What did they do trade-wise before the draft? Did they fill those needs? And that would indicate to us whether we would trade back. And I had a sense that we would still get the same player if we moved back and picked up a couple extra picks in the later rounds, or we had to go up and jump a team because I knew that they had the same need that we had and uh, we would have to jump him to go get that player. But there's been plenty of times that there's maybe been minute left on the clock and we're still, I'm still processing whether to trade or to take that player. And when a trade actually happens on draft day, when you're sitting there watching that, you hear a team, okay, they moved up three slots and they gave them, you know, pick 98 and, two, and, and a pick in 2023. Well, you have to call that into the league while you're on the clock and that other team has to call into the league while you're on that clock. And then the league has to approve that trade. So, there's not a lot of wiggle. I remember us moving up to get Teddy Bridgewater uh, at last pick in the first round, and that came down to about 45 seconds before we got all the trade done, and then I called Teddy Bridgewater on the phone. And then there's times where you have to decide whether you're just going to be patient and let that player fall to you, 
And my first draft with the Minnesota Vikings was, I remember I'm sitting there and everybody's holding their breath and we're picking uh, and we're just waiting for Adrian Peterson to fall to us. And we didn't know if someone's going to trade up ahead of us uh, to go take him. And we decided in my first draft, and I got the ownership sitting next to me, uh, do you you trade up to make sure you get him or do you kind of be patient and let it go? But that's understanding the needs of other teams. And we were very fortunate that uh, we just stayed there and still were able to get Adrian Peterson who fell to us. And that's the, that's the difference, too, in, in NFL versus Major League Baseball or, or the NBA, because it's immediate impact. And as you mentioned, uh, what's our needs? You know, in baseball, they're just going to take the best guy on the board because he's going to go into the minor league system. You know, if you need a, if you need a number one starting pitcher, you're not going to go get an 18-year-old. He's not going to be ready until he's 22. So, yeah, it, it's completely different. You're, you're worried about needs, guys on the field next year, for the, especially those first-round picks. Um, right. Also the, the one thing, I just want to just make a point, uh, you never reach for a need. So the, as you're looking at your draft board, and let's say you needed a running back, right. and the, you have other positions up there that are rated higher than the running back who may be you know, 15 players down below, you don't pass up Hall of Fame type players. It's like the Adrian Peterson example. Uh, we had this is my first year, uh, Chester Taylor, who had, they had signed a previous year from Baltimore, who just rushed for 1,200 yards. So running back wasn't a need, but Adrian Peterson, we felt, was a potential Hall of Fame type running back. And I do believe he'll be in the Hall of Fame. And that's too good of a player. You don't pass up a blue chip player. Uh, especially uh, just to say to fill a need with another player. The other thing I noticed too with the NFL is these fans are, and I I don't mean this in a bad way, they're crazy. And they know everybody, (laughs) you know, they know everybody on that board because they're big time college football players and everybody's a big time college football fan. The baseball, completely different. If the Cincinnati Reds in the first round take, Joe Jones from uh, Washington, Washington High School in Illinois, everybody will just golf clap and say, oh, he must be a really good player. So there's really, you know, they're not getting booed out of the draft room. You know, I, I watched that in the yeah. NFL and, the, you know, the fans, the, the Eagles are on the clock and then the Eagles make their pick and all the Eagles fans go crazy and start yelling. And I'm going, that's because they know all these players because they're big time college football and, and they're so visible, you know, leading up to the draft. That's a difference. How about the guys on TV? Do you ever pay attention to them or do you think if they were that good, they'd be working for me? No, the biggest difference, I think the guys on TV and I had an opportunity and, you know, I, I worked the draft in Vegas this year. So I was on the media side and, uh, I worked, did uh, CBS. I did about 12 shows with them. I did Fox, uh, national radio with Jay Glazer and Rob Stone and LeVar Arrington on Thursday night. The difference is, is that there is so much information that the media doesn't know that the teams do know the media doesn't know their medical, the meat, you know, uh, right. every team grades these guys medically differently. So a guy has a torn up knee, you know, our doctors may say, well, he's off our board, but he may be on their board for another. Uh, we, you know, we've spent so much money on private investigations and thing thing documents that may have potentially uh, been sealed, but we were able to find something out. So, we have a lot more information that will never become public knowledge um, that that's why we are able – that's why the decisions we make sometimes differ from those guys in the media. But I can tell you it's the first time that I wasn't in a draft room that I was actually at the draft in Vegas. And you're talking about how big the NFL draft is. There's over 200,000 people on the street Thursday night. Uh, with everybody in their jerseys, and it's it's just such an event. And I believe that if you took the draft shows uh, from NFL Network and ESPN and everybody that does these draft shows, the TV ratings are almost double or triple what it is for an NBA playoff game or a Major League Baseball game or the NHL playoffs going on. It's incredible 
how popular that draft has become because all the passionate fans out there see whoever you take, especially in the first in the first round, that player is a savior that's going to help our team win the Super Bowl next year. And that's a lot of pressure on these kids. And that's part of the process when you're interviewing these kids. You're trying to dig down deep, not only his passion for the game, but how's he going to handle that pressure? Because the first time he walks out on that field for a, a rookie minicamp, there's going to be 5,000 cameras on him, especially if he's a quarterback. And, and that kid's going to have so much pressure put on him about being the savior of the franchise that it's, you got to make sure those, those kids at those ages can handle it because you're talking about 18-year-olds. Well, a lot of times now we're getting these kids when they're 20 years old and when they're, when they're coming out. And uh, they have to, to, to be able to handle that type of pressure uh, as rookies coming into an organization. Yeah, it's a good point you make, and in, in to the TV side versus actually being in that draft room in an organization, having that privy to that information. And as you know now on the media side, it's about giving your knowledge, your experience, Rick Spielman, what you've been through in your life, all the places you've been, and giving it out there, wrapping it into a nice bow. And being an entertainer—that's part of it. When you're not, when you're making the pick, and you know, yeah, what they don't know about this guy that they're talking about on TV, I do know. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's yeah. a different, it's a different animal, and it's an interesting one. That's why TV's entertainment, draft rooms, big time business. Um, how much weight? There was when you, when, I'm just yeah, that was funny. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but no you know, problem. All these prognosticators, I guess, would be the best term to call them. We're talking about. Hey, three or four of these quarterbacks, maybe five will go in the first round. But the teams had a lot more of that information that the uh, public and the, and the uh, NFL draft experts are not privy to. And that's why you probably only seen one go in the first round and you didn't see the rest of them go till the start of the third or till the third round. Yeah. Interesting stuff that goes into it. How much weight, uh, once you get, you know, you, you like a player and all your guys in, in your organization love this player. It's getting to combine time. How much weight do you put into that combine? That, that's interesting because it, we always went back. The one number one rule for, I think, most teams and including what I always believe is we never had any, we never set the draft board based after the combine, we always set the draft board before we went to the combine. And then now if there's, if there's a skilled position, a receiver that maybe runs a four, seven or four, eight, 40, uh, then that's going to knock him definitely down the board or even off the draft list. But for the most part, what you're doing is trying to verify what you've seen on tape. Um, but the thing that you don't know is because you're not interviewing these kids during the season you're trying to talk to your sources at the school when uh, you're out on fall visits, but you don't really get to know the kid until you actually start the pre-draft process. And I know, you know, probably the, and I talked a little bit about after action review and the mistakes and the, you know, the quarterback position, which is, as you see, everybody, if you got a quarterback, especially in the way today's NFL is, that gives you a chance to have a chance. Uh, to win a Super Bowl. And you saw what the Rams did when they went out and got Matthew Stafford, who never was, I think, won maybe one playoff game or been only in the playoff game once, got into that organization, and his first year of that organization uh, won a Super Bowl. But one of the things that I did learn, and we were talking about maybe intelligence earlier, and maybe this relates to baseball as well, is that, and especially at the quarterback position, uh, from the, some of the mistakes that I made is I always thought the quarterback had to be the smartest guy on the field, which is true, but there's a difference between smart and there's a difference between mental quickness. So a quarterback can go up there on the, on the board and, and we would do this when we were testing quarterbacks in our pre-draft process is the offensive coordinator would install for 20 minutes uh, schemes, concepts, different th looks that we're going to get on defense and how we would respond to that. And then we would let 
we would watch the quarterbacks and how copious their notes were because we wanted to get a feel and a sense for how they were going to be in the meetings. Then we did all these intelligence tests. But what I learned was it wasn't just intelligence. It can be, and I've seen quarterbacks go up there and sound better than the offensive coordinator did installing for 20 minutes. But can that same player process that in two and a half seconds or less when you got rushers coming in to take your head off? And I think it relates across the board on guys can be smart, but how mentally quick they are to read and react to things that are happening at, at such a rapid pace. How, how in depth do you get with the players as far as interviewing the players and get not only the testing part, but how much time are you able to spend? I always, this was when I was done playing and I was out of the league for a few years, I, th- I always thought my dream job was, Right before draft, tell me who you like the most. I'm going to fly to their city, take them to lunch, hang out with them for the day. And I'm going to come back and I'll tell you what I think. Because I always thought I could just close my eyes, talk to somebody for a while, and I'll know whether you're a minor leaguer or a big leaguer by how you speak. I, can, I, can, I thought I could parse the, you know, the naivety and, and someone being immature. I, I could separate that from, well, that doesn't mean he's not a big leaguer. I just want to hear how he answers questions. Maybe I'm asking a question to see how he'll, you know, see how he'll answer it, not what he says. Does that make sense? Did, did you put a lot yeah, of, we, yeah, we, I mean, really basically reading that. people, basically reading people. And you get a sense the more you do it. And I've interviewed thousands and thousands of players. And what I try to do is educate myself and educate our staff, our scouts, our coaches on, because these kids nowadays with their agents are so rehearsed when they come into an interview. And at the combine, we have formal interviews because of the 32 teams there and you know, these these kids going from room to room in interviews, you only get 15 minutes with them. But that's not enough to really get to truly know the kid. So we did a lot of uh, Skype calls, FaceTime calls, where we'd spend an hour with him. You could spend up to an hour with him. And sometimes if we had questions on a kid, we would spend up to two or three hours uh, at different times, at different points with that kid to make sure that not only I signed off on him, the scout signed off on him, but the coaches, more importantly, those are the guys that they're go- he's going to have to be with on a daily basis. In the meetings, out on the practice field, uh, getting to know him, that's going to be his – you're the one that's going to have to have the relationship with the kid. So I always thought that was vital to maybe get to know the kid, but how do you really get to know the kid? So we had – and I – brought in some guys, uh, again, from the special forces that actually do interrogating for a living. So without sitting there and waterboarding the kid, I didn't really (laughs) get to know who the heck he is. So they gave us different ways to ask questions. And what I found was these kids that were so rehearsed, if you hear something on an open-ended question, they would go down a whole different rabbit hole that I didn't even know that existed. And we found out some things on these kids as they opened up and we got them out of their rehearsed mode uh, to really find out what that kid is. And so there's a technique and a way to do that. And, but again, I'm not an expert in that area, but I always try to go out and get the people that were experts in those areas to try to teach us how do we become better interviewers so we get to understand who these kids really are and who we're bringing into the organization? I would think, too, if, and I'll give you a, a scenario, uh, just a hypothetical. You're going into a draft. You're lukewarm on a kid. You, you like him. You don't love him. Now it comes down to that interview process. He doesn't interview well for you. That's going to change your opinion on him all that. And it could go the other way as well. You're lukewarm. You don't love him. You kind of like him. But man, he blows you away in that interview as a guy. He really impresses you personally. That might flip your whole opinion on him. Does that happen to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's been guys that, um, and those usually become the tiebreakers for us. So if there's guys stacked right next to each other, uh, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to go down the analytics road, but that interview process, 
and they're relatively close in, in talent. And one guy, you got, God, this guy, I love this kid. I love his passion. I love his grit. I love his approach to the game. I love his intelligence. And this guy was just a dud in interview. Then you're going to go with that guy that really clicked in that interview that you felt uh, would be a great fit for your organization and a great fit in that locker room. You have to take into account because we always try to build that chemistry in that locker room and who you're bringing down in that locker room. And if you can get a bunch of like-minded guys that truly do care for each other, especially, I don't care in what sport you're in, you're going to go through a diversity during a long season. But in the end, I always felt, that whether I was right or wrong, is that those players in that locker room, they like their coach, you're going to get coached, you're going to get prepared for the game, we're going to bring the talent in. But those guys got to truly care for each other, and you would know better than anyone for each other because when the crap hits the fan and everybody's coming in from the outside, are those guys, when they're out on that field on Sundays, going to gut it up and play for each other? And when you can get a group of guys that are willing to do that, you got a pretty good chance of having a success. Yeah, that that those intangibles, they're they're unbelievable. And and they're not gonna make the big difference for that superstar talent. That superstar talent's gonna be there, is gonna be probably a superstar. But the guy that's that fringe guy that has impeccable intangibles, and I've seen it. I've seen a guy that sat next to me in a locker room. And he was a fringe big league player. I didn't know if he was going to be there two weeks or two months, but I knew he wasn't going to play that long. His intangibles were so huge. And, and that team orient guys liked having him around. Next thing I know, I look up and he, and he plays in the big leagues for 16 years, ends up being a really good player. And it all started because of those intangibles you were talking about and, and the heart that he had and just something about him. You know, when it was time for somebody to get sent out, they, they'd rally around and say, no, you can't send him out. He's a too important to this team. And uh, right. it, it was really an eye opener for me. And, and I look up years later and, and I talk to him still today and I said, can you believe you got 16 years in the big leagues? And he just starts laughing about the talks we had when he was a rookie. And he, and he said, because uh, I remember he said, well, what should I do? I said, right now. I said, you wear a pair of khakis, you wear, you wear a polo shirt, you part your hair on the side, you say, yes, sir, no, sir. And uh, when you make an all-star team, you could, you could dye your hair blue and get a nose ring. I don't care. Until then, <laughs> sit here and shut up. Next thing you know, he's got 16 years in the big leagues, made millions and millions of dollars, and hell of a player, hell of a guy. I, I just got a few more, and I'll let you go. Uh, this is mm-hmm. really interesting to me uh, because, you know, my side as a player, I, I played for several different, you know, I had several GMs throughout my career. Some were more hands-on than others. Uh, some distanced themselves. As a general manager with the players, because you're the guy that has to release them, trade them. Do you, do you make a conscious effort to keep a distance, that relationship, GM, player, professional? I'm, I'm sure some guys you became friends with, you really liked them as men. But but is there something inside they say, I got to keep this, I, I got to keep somewhat of an arm's length distance because of the professional relationship we have? I think it's uh, that's the difference between a front office and a coach. Because a coach, if you don't have that relationship with that player, you know, that, that's vital for that player and that coach to have some kind of relationship because that coach is trying to make that player better. That player has to trust in that coach, that the coach has the best interest in him. But as a general manager, I, you know, I'm not going to w- walk by him and not say a word. Hey, how's your family? Things like that. But I tried to keep a little bit of distance because I knew when I had the final decision on players' futures, uh, and what kept me up at night was I knew that a veteran who's been there for 10 years that has been a very good football player, that his contract got too high and that he was on the downside. And I knew I had a younger guy that was going to pass him up and be better than him. I had to cut that guy the next day. And I just dreaded that. That was the hardest part of that job. But by me kind of keeping my distance and being able to make business decisions which is hard to do because you're affecting human and you're affecting that guy's family. You have to have a separation, if that makes sense, because I wouldn't want to get skewed in any way on my decisions because of a relationship I had with a player. 
Yeah. And, and I figured you do that. I think about it all the time. And I thought about being in that position. I'd have to keep in length. And some guys you're going to be drawn to just naturally because they're good guys and you get along. But you've got to be careful because you said, like you said, there, there comes a time and a place where you've got to make a real tough decision that's going to affect this guy, his life, his family life. And, and if you're close buddies having barbecues with him on the weekend, that's going to that's going to be a rough conversation. And like you said, you don't want to skew it and say, oh, maybe he's got another year year when really in your heart of hearts you know he doesn't um, right. i had a general man i had a general manager jim bowden he, he's now an analyst on espn but uh he was my general manager in cincinnati and my my dad was an executive with the reds so you know my dad and jim spent a lot of time together my mom uh was good friends with jim and i remember <laughs> after the 98 season i get a phone call from jim and he calls me and he says booney uh I made a trade and you're going to the Atlanta Braves. And it, it was a great trade for me from a, from a uh, career standpoint. I was going to the Braves. I was probably going to go to the World Series. I didn't have any hard feelings. I got traded for a number one starter. It wasn't like, uh, you know, I, I felt like I wasn't wanted. No, I felt like the Braves wanted me. You know, I, I looked at it that way instead of the Reds didn't want me. Uh, but I remember my mom right. wouldn't talk to him for about a year. And I said, Mom, it's not personal. It's not personal. He's doing what's best for the Reds at the time, and and the Braves are doing what's best for them. But I thought it was I thought it was really interesting. And and it comes down to you're right. It's you got to keep a little bit of that distance. Um, best move you never made. Oh boy, that's a uh, that's a tough question. It's uh, because every move. Like I said, it, you know, um, you, you contemplate whether it was the right move or not. And everybody's, no one's ever perfect in this business. But, you know, I, I would say probably the, the, the one that probably we were able to recover from was when we traded Stefan Diggs to the Buffalo Bills. And that was because Stefan Diggs was such a great player. We had just done a contract a year or two before with him. And we made the decision to go ahead and trade him to Buffalo. But I didn't know how I was going to replace a talent like that. And we were very fortunate that year uh, that we were able to replace him with Justin Jefferson. Um, so, but I don't know if there's a move that I would say that I can remember, to be honest with you, that I would say, God, I wish I would have done that. I'm sure there are plenty of them, but I just wish I could think of one right now. What are you doing now? You said you did a little draft work this for this year on TV. Yeah, I've, I've yeah, I've been been actually very more b- busier than I thought. So uh, I'm going to do a lot of work with CBS. I think I'm going to have an opportunity to do some stuff with Fox. Uh, I've got a TikTok thing now because TikTok called me. They don't have an NFL presence, so I got a TikTok thing that I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> oh, I want to see that. I'm, I'm gonna. I'll be looking for you. On <laughs> I need TikTok. followers. You need to jump on. You can. I just I, I'll tell you what. I'll follow you. I put the podcast. I just put it on TikTok. But I, I'm like a little kid now. You know, uh, two months ago, I'd see my kids doing TikTok. I'd be like, oh, that's like a yeah. child thing. I'm, I'm watching TikTok because it, they're so good. They find they find what you like and what interests you. You'll sit there and start watching TikTok. Hour later, you're oh still watching God. them. Go, where did it go? Where did it go? Yeah. But I will. Well, I'll good. jump on and follow you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I've been doing <laughs> I want to see it. Things, some yeah, some consulting work uh, with a lot of different areas that I've never been able to enjoy before. But it was like today, you know, I did. Uh, I had this podcast with you tonight. I had a TikTok thing today. I had two other uh, events that I had to do. And then I went out and played nine holes of golf from 3 to 4.30 uh, at the club right down the street. I'm going to talk at a coaches convention this weekend. The following weekend, I'm going to a college and, and doing a speaking engagement there. So I've been keeping busy, uh, you know, and it's, you know, my wife, I, I had a few opportunities to probably jump back in. Uh, but I've turned those opportunities down. My wife said after 30 some years, it's time to, uh, to enjoy life a little bit. And we moved from Minnesota. We bought a house in Sanibel, Florida here on the Island and, uh, totally different lifestyle. And, uh, 
So I think I'm going to probably stay uh, retired from the front office side of things and, and kind of and, and been really enjoying some of the opportunities that have been coming my way and being able to do those. Tell the wife, never say never. You never know when you might get that bug back. Anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you never know. Never that. say <laughs> never. I had Bruce Bochy on recently, and, and I said, Bochy, you going to jump back in? He goes, ah, Boney, you know. I might manage again. My health feels, you know, I'm feeling good. Uh, I always say, never say never. Rick Spielman, it's been a pleasure. Uh, awesome career, and and best of luck to you going forward. I'll be checking you out on TikTok for sure. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.